We're so excited you're tuned in to the inaugural episode of Scores and Pores with myself. I'm Emily Reese. And I'm Joel Mott. And we are going to dissect the conjoining themes in classical music and wine. And perhaps other alcoholic beverages like beer and, you know, who wants to live their life without rum? Sure, we could tie that into some classical music. We haven't yet. We need to do that. We'll do that. Okay. Joe Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. It's a beautiful day in uh, the Twin Cities today again. And we lack an ocean, but we brought the ocean to us. We, we are going to hear it and taste it today. We're going to taste and hear the ocean. I'm going to propel my theories of why you can taste it. I'm going to get a whole lot of kickback. I hope, sort of not. Um, <laughs> but there's... So many elements to seaside wines that are fascinating. It is cool that we're going to meld the idea of technique and suggestion and symbolism of seaside notions in classical music. Yeah. We're going to hear and taste some oceans today. It's true. And when we decided to do this topic, I sent you an email riddled with questions Yes. I usually receive things that are similar, questions that are similar. Um, they don't use, of course, the same verbiage, but the the surrounding questions are similar with wine. Like if you, because my email, just to summarize, we're like, are there certain techniques used to evoke the ocean in music? Is it universal? Can people break those rules? Do you need to be told about the theme before you're listening in order to know exactly. Mm-hmm. And your answers were not only fascinating and awesome, <laughs> but then it just made me want to go listen to like every seaside song <laughs> yeah. slash classical music entity <laughs> I had ever heard, which obviously didn't happen. But mm-hmm. um, so is there is there a common theme with water-based music or water-themed music? I think it depends on the era because there were different tools available at different times for people to be able to make those things happen. Like in the Romantic and late Romantic era, you hear a lot of harps sometimes, maybe two harps, you know, just to droplets, water droplets, things like that, or swirling lines, maybe up and down, or arpeggiations up and down with these scales or uh, chords or something like that can evoke music. But again, these are all things that can be used to evoke other things as well. Like, uh, you know, it, it might not mean water. It might mean some sort of metaphorical mental downfall or yeah, something, you know, yeah. who, who knows? But but knowing the subject is is where it's key. But, you know, in the, in the Baroque era, there were different tools as well, and we'll talk about that. And you said that there's really, um, in, in one of your answers, you said definitely no. Like there's no way of knowing. Yeah, there's no way. Unless you I are either already versed in that piece of work or yeah, in, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah, there's just no, I mean, how could you know? How could you know? I mean, there's just, yeah, you just can't, you just can't know. You, you'd be making an educated guess, but you would never know. Okay. You know, and there's a distinction there. There's a huge distinction between an educated guess and just hardcore knowledge, like pretending, you know, the people who... uh put forth the notion that music is a language, it, that's that's such a stretch. It's just not. Yeah. So it can't communicate uh, without loads of already having all this prior context in the back of your mind to draw certain conclusions. You know, there there are very primitive ways it can communicate, yes. But we're not talking about, you know, listening to a tune for the very first time and knowing it's about water. That's, yeah. There's no way. Yeah. And with wine, I would argue that if you are well embedded in the wine world, what would help you say, oh my gosh, you're tasting something blind and you go, this is a seaside wine. I'm sure these vineyards see the sea. Well, that's because you've had those before. Maybe yeah. maybe even the same producers, but you've had, you know, wines from the Muscadet region in Western France on the ocean, close to the ocean. Chacoli that we're going to taste today on the ocean you know, wines from Greece or Cyprus, et cetera. You've had those wines, so you you already have a sensory memory for what salty slash briny smells and tastes like, but we'll we'll get there, I think. Yeah. So, well, I, I have sh- a feeling I'm going to learn a lot of new words today and maybe some science. 
So what are we going to talk about first? Let's start with music because the Marais is so short, and, okay. and we can just talk about that super fast. So this Baroque composer named Marin Marais, who I love, by the way, and uh, he he also wrote a bunch of music for viola da gamba, which is one of the Baroque instruments we've talked mm-hmm. about before, and it's be- just beautiful music. He's very awesome. So I recommend you check out Marin Marais when you can, but uh, there's this opera that he wrote called Alcyone, and there's like a storm in it. It's just a it's just a storm out at sea, and it's crazy that when I was when I heard it was part of an opera because I've ne- I had never heard this piece before. Emily introduced me to it, and you know there, I of course I researched it first, and I was getting all ready, and I put it on, and it was like less than two minutes, it was over. I was yeah. like, that's a really quick storm. <laughs> it was a very quick storm, <laughs> very quick storm. It. Let's hear it, Marin Murray. This is how he is doing his musical business. Lots of swirling lines in here, too. For sure. But there kind of is in a lot of Baroque music. And then there's that wind machine. I want one of those. You can't buy one. You have to make it. Yes, I know I've asked for various T-shirts. <laughs> Anybody wants to make me a wind machine and send me one, <laughs> we'll have fun with that on the show for sure. Yes. So thanks in, you know, large part to the wind machine, we can draw some conclusions, but we wouldn't know necessarily that it was a storm at sea, would we? It could be someone galloping on a house, or on, a, on horse a horse through, through a valley or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, it could be anything. Minute 25. Even Minute hear the, 25. You even hear the wind machine slow down <laughs> at the end. Storm is over. Storm is over. If you're not familiar with a wind machine, uh, we'll... Post a picture because they're weird looking. And I mean, they're just these big things you spin and it makes this whooshing noise. And all kinds of composers used them and still use them. There are still people who score for wind machine. So, you know, there's a really great example. And there there are other examples of storms and uh, ocean things in Baroque times. But, you know, they all kind of sound just Baroque-y. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's all kind there's those swirling lines that go up and down and stuff in that tune we just heard, but you hear that in Vivaldi and you know what I mean, like Handel and. So do you mind that we could just to hear two back to back? Do you mind if we go from that to our next composer? Oh, which who's our next? Which Smetna? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> because they're so very different. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a couple hundred years between them, for one. Okay. Which matters, you know, lots. So uh, the Smetna, what's really fun? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the Smetna, <laughs> I really could go for the rest of my life and never hear this piece again. I really could. Like, I didn't even listen to the whole thing. I just, I haven't heard it probably in five or six years. I just told you. I'm like, you have to, because you have to. I mean, the mold out. Okay, so this is from a big, huge piece of music that Smetna wrote in the late 1800s. He was from what is now the Czech Republic and uh, really is uh, known, I think, to people of that region as the father of Czech music, even though you know globally the rest of us think of it, him as Dvorak mm-hmm. being the father of Czech music. Dvorak a little bit younger than Smetna, but they lived, you know, roughly in the same times and were writing around the, kind of the same times. Uh, so Smetna wrote this, this huge work. Uh, it took him several years called Mavlast, which is my country or my home, my homeland. My homeland, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he just scored various aspects of it, one of those aspects being the Moldau, which is a river that goes through that area. Um, and that's all I know. I don't even know where it is. Like, I'm sure that you looked at maps. <laughs> I'm, you I showed, sent you a you map. You sent me a map. It's true. And and so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. I think it's, um, if I remember correctly, it's a south, or it's a, it's a river that runs north-south, 
Um, and it runs through the entirety of Bohemia and I think the entire southwest part of the Czech of the present day Czech Republic. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, there's a movement that belonged to a famous castle. He had like all these monu- monumental aspects of Mavlast that he featured. Mm-hmm. And Moldau yeah. just seems like one that when I started to listen to it. Yeah. Depicted notions of water because you had told me, listen for this and listen for this. And I was like, I hear it. I hear it. It totally does. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to listen, if I were to listen to it on my own, yeah. I'm sure it, you know, it sounds kind of um, like proud and very shouldered and very noble, but I wouldn't necessarily go to, you know, I would maybe think of a national pride. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, river. So I should explain about why I'd be fine never hearing the Moldau again because it's not it's a great piece and the but what happens is it's a, it's not a particularly challenging piece for professional musicians to play. Therefore, a lot of like high school and like less professional ensembles play. Tons of professional ensembles play it too. It's just not. Like they're not like playing Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're they're playing the Moldau and it's like kind of lilts along and is a little it's just and so you hear it as a kid in, in if you're in the music world, you'll hear it at like all states or like honor this, honor uh, that. Yeah. You'll you'll just hear it all the damn time. And then by the time you're out of school, you're like, I don't ever want to hear the Moldau ever again. And then you work in classical radio for eight years and you hear it once a month or something and you're just over it. You know, but it's still, it's a great, great example of how a composer chose to depict this, this, the swirling water of this uh, beautiful, significant river. So how did he do that? Well, he uses a, a compound meter called 6-8. Do you know why 6-8 or compound meters or triple meters, why they were chosen to depict water at some point? And why still today, it seems, you sent me a very funny example and I listened <laughs> to it, that it's still 6-8 or triple meters are used to depict water in some instances. And it's yeah. like innately known perhaps it, yeah. so do you know why that is i think i mean I, you know i i guess my assumption has always been because it's a very flowy time signature whether it's a compound meter or a simple meter it still just kind of rolls along and when, something about triplets as well which that you know if we're going to get into the difference between compound meter and not. I mean, compound meter just means that the beat is divided into triplets, not eighth notes okay. or a duple thing. It's yep. divided into threes. Divided into threes. So, you know, six, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. But the beat itself, right? Each like is a duple thing. Yep. But there's those beats are divided into one, two, three, four, five, six instead of one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, so two. So next three, time you're four. on, next time you're yeah. rolling down a river. Yeah. Do you want to roll like this? I was, I was just thinking. Rolling down, the, or do you want to be like rolling down the rip? You know what I mean? <laughs> I was just thinking of the times that I've like been on a tube or a raft or something at, at mm-hmm. my lake or on a river, and I'm thinking to myself, like, mm hmm, mm hmm. <laughs> versus like <laughs> and it's yeah. never the latter yeah, no. <laughs> so okay yeah. so there's there's probably something to a naturally and I feel like I read that somewhere about oh, like a naturally occurring 
vibration of water, but I won't go there because I didn't read enough <laughs> to be able to comment where or how scientific that is. Yeah. Um, but so, okay. Uh, so so tr- compound meter. Yeah. Triple meter. Compound triple. Yeah, compound compound duple. Compound duple. Compound triple would be if it were nine eight, gotcha. not six eight. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So th- that's one of the things that happens in the Moldau. And then just the fact that the uh there's all this really lovely, like right at right away, it just starts off with this really great swirling and the winds and you know, the strings come in, and then there's this just really lovely melody that just sweeps over all the top of these swirling lines below, and it just really gives this delightful, like, spot-on, you know, effect. Speaking of roll right along. Yeah. Should we yes, please. roll to Seaside Wines? Yes, pour it. So let's go to um, talking about Seaside Wines. So in my profession, I do feel like it's quite common if you're talking among sommeliers, even people that 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 drink a lot of wine, uh, you know, someone that uh, buys wine for a wine shop or something, if you mention wines of the sea, they immediately know what you mean. The wines are most likely going to be a little bit lighter, not always, but they're going to have some sort of briny, salty sensation, whether it's in the nose or on the palate. And when you say briny, right away I think, well, what do, what, is, what do you mean briny? If I ask someone and they say salt, like, you know, salty, and I say, well, go smell your salt jar. Does it smell like anything? And they're like, no. So... To just kind of clear up, uh, salty can be a really hard thing to talk about in wine because salt doesn't have a smell, A. But B, um, a lot of natural wines, it's proven, have like a salty quality to them. And and I don't really know, honestly, where that comes from. I know it's trying to be, it's being studied right now, but people don't have a concrete answer. Um, so salt is hard to talk about. But when we talk about, when we can say that brininess and we don't, necessarily say that's salty because when you ask brine people are like oh like salt like salt water well now we're getting somewhere because salt water inevitably means that your ocean water is coming in contact with phytoplankton and bromophenols and it's just like blow blow your mind so um (laughs) why don't we pour some wine first okay before we get into this conversation so when you smell the ocean you're smelling brininess not salt Correct. And you're smelling, um, so I'll start with two terms and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about them kind of independently of wine and indep- try to make them independent of themselves so we can try to latch on to why wines could be, not scientifically proven, but Jill hypothesizing and proven <laughs> in my heart and in my soul uh, <laughs> that they can be salty. So okay. to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Why is it so dead? What is that about? Because the wine is so alive inside. No, for real. What's that about? They've I, never clinked like that before. I don't know. It's true. Well, we're tasting we're tasting a <laughs> wine from the Basque country uh, in northern, slightly eastern Spain, borders France. And this is a wine that comes from a grape called Ondaribizuri and or Ondaribibelza, depending on the color and um, what what style it is? They usually have some spritz to them. What does that mean? Like a little effervescence, oh, a little like sparkle. Once it turns into the wine, yep, not yep. The grape you bite into it, it's Co- not correct, <laughs> correct. Um, and a lot of the vineyards see the sea. Now there's some inland vineyards for Chacoli or Chacolina in the Basque country, um, but they are inevitably what ends up in the white slash rosé versions are usually at least eighty percent of them have either spritz that's been injected or they have natural spritz, which this is what this has. So it's been bottled just slightly before it finished fermenting. Fair enough. So um, when you smell this wine, like inevitably I smell like, you know, I I won't go into the fruity nature of it because I think that that's 
you know, everybody's got different fruit notions, but I mean, sometimes because we smell minerals, like what we think of are wet rocks, yeah, that's hard to separate from what we think might be an acidic wine, yeah, because those can kind of be interchanged depending on who's tasting. Okay. Does it smell like salt? It doesn't. But does it smell like perhaps an apple that's been bitten into and you're also on the ocean? <laughs> like a little bit of like nori or algae, maybe. Yeah, I could I could see like um near like tidal pools maybe more so than Thank you. And I'm yeah. pissed that I didn't bring a shell. Because when you drink this in a shell, it's just like mind blowing. But okay, oh. so now I'll give it a sip. You see how it tastes? Like there's inevitably this is yes, it's an acidic wine. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And the spritz kind of it it jumbles in there as well. It plays into the program. But <laughs> if you if someone said that this wine doesn't have an element of saltiness, yeah, especially be, on, at the end, yeah, like like lick your teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great call, right? So yeah. Here's my theory. We'll start with... Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to settle in here. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about terms, and keep in mind I'm not a scientist. I read all too much about the topic, but I'm definitely not. I haven't done, like, re- chemical research on this, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But so there's a compound called dimethyl sulfide that I'm going to refer to as DMS for short. And DMS is basically... It's a, it's a compound that is produced by... Um, like it smells like fermented cabbage-like component in a wine that has too much dimethyl sulfide, and that can happen for a variety of reasons. So this is something that gets into wine. It can, it can be, yes, but it, but it can also be produced by wine, meaning like, so some people will argue that when yeasts ferment a wine in the absence of oxygen and you open it up, and you go to smell your fruity wine and it smells kind of like cabbage, they'll call that reduced. They'll say, this wine's kind of reduced. And the wine community knows that means that there's been a lack of oxygen while that wine's fermenting. Okay. Therefore, it doesn't smell fruity. It smells like a little bit like eggs or a little bit like cabbage or something like that. And some people in the scientific community say, when we smell dimethyl sulfide, we are smelling a reaction from the yeast during fermentation. Check. Great. Okay. There's another, when we're talking about um, phytoplankton in the ocean, they produce dimethyl sulfide. And it's actually, um, they turn into basically like what we would consider aerosol, sea spray, basically sea spray or fog, like aerosols in the air that are filled with dimethyl sulfide. And if dimethyl sulfide, DMS, if it condensates... Mm-hmm. And then it rains on a vineyard or settles on a vineyard or mm-hmm. there's fog on a vineyard, which we all know that, mm, well, it's not true. A lot of people in the wine community know that if you're visiting a seaside region, half the time you go to that seaside region, it's going to be flipping foggy. <laughs> so what happens to that DMS? Yeah. Does it just, it comfortably lays aside the yeast on the grapes and then all of a sudden it just disappears because DMS <laughs> just disappears. Like, that's just hard to imagine that these micro-size phytoplankton, Yeah, like if I could drink a glass of water spiked with phytoplankton, I bet it's not going to taste like tap water. Probably not. So you wonder how that travels through fermentation, right? Something that also has never been proven. Right. So, So you can get the dimethyl sulfide from the ocean itself through the condensation of the water, turns into spray, whatever, and it is sometimes produced through the f- fermentation process because of a lack of oxygen. And Not because of a lack of oxygen, but but the compounds that are released, there's... During fermentation. Yep. Okay. That there are... Dimethyl sulfide is a compound that can be released due to reaction with the yeast with other things okay. that can produce it in a lack of oxygen in a, that state. Okay, okay. So, and when people in low thresholds, in high thresholds, DMS, people will be like, oh, it smells like cabbage. I don't like it. Oh, that's so... But in really low thresholds, if you ask people what 
DMS smells like, they say it smells like the ocean, mm. kind of smells like being by the sea and they don't really go into it, what that means to them. Yeah, but yeah. The DMS can also be added to foods to make them taste more like what we would say salty slash savory, not okay. like MSG, but think yeah. of it the sim- in a similar way. Yeah. And so, huh. okay, we're adding it to food yeah. to make it seem more savory. Right. So. Right. Okay. So that's DMS. DMS. We, I think we should wait for bromophenols. Really? Until we get to our next wine. But what do you think? Do you think that this is, um, this is a good question for you because you love wine and you're learning more about it, but you aren't super embedded in it. If I were to, if you were to taste this wine, you went and bought it on the shelf, you yeah. didn't know where the heck the boss country is, so you couldn't. Yeah. Would you know that this vineyard, these vineyards saw the sea? No. Okay. I, I wouldn't only because I wouldn't know what to taste or smell for. Okay. But now that you've tasted this kind of saltiness, yes. if you ever tasted it again, would yes. your first question be like, Jill, Yes. is this an ocean wine? Yes. And I think I have asked you that before. You have. It's yeah. true. So, and I was right, wasn't I? Yes. It was a Vermentino. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so see, I guess maybe I would have. I, I don't, maybe, perhaps I would have known, especially after the teeth lick at the end. And when you think, that's crazy. And when you think what's so cool about wines like this is usually seaside wines are salty, and this is a little added tidbit, but seaside wines are are they've got this element of saltiness, but they can be nice and bright and high in acidity. Yeah. What are we eating on the coasts? Seafood, fresh fish. We're eating mussels. We're eating oysters. That's why and, I need to move to the coast. That's and and all those things. <clears throat> not only do they, if they're fatty, do they want a high acid wine to cut through them, but there were a lot of times that, you know, we think that adding a lemon wedge with our fish, that we do that because it's cute and, you know, makes it taste better, which sometimes it does. But the reason why that actually became a thing was before it was flavorful, you didn't know if your fish was, like, was your fish healthy to eat? Were these oysters yeah. healthy to eat? So the reason why there's vinegar put on oysters, like in a mignette, the reason why you're drinking champagne with oysters, chacoli with mussels and stuff like that is because high acid was thought to be an attempt at a barrier to thwart, like, illness from... Kind of isn't, though, is it? (laughs) I mean, no, it isn't really. But there there may, I don't know, there may have been a time where it was, but that's a lot of times where those marriages came came to be. Yeah. It was kind of... Nice. So what is the name of this that we're enjoying right now again? So this is a, a wine called Amastoi Chacolina. Um, this is the one wine that I would say if someone asked me how many gallons of Amastoi Chacolina I've consumed in the last 20 years, I would be embarrassed to count. <laughs> um, it's a at a wine bar I used to work with. We have always poured it by the glass. And here in Minneapolis, it's gained um, a great following for being a wine that's very typical of its type, of its region. It's well-made. They're still using indigenous yeast, which for Chacolina is quite hard to find. Okay. Um, natural CO2, delicious. Limestone soils, which makes it even more racy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So. Yeah, it's, it is delicious. I like it very much. Cheers. Cheers. So on to interpretive, like extremely interpretive. Extremely interpretive. I Scandalously love, interpretive. I love when you said you... Asked my question in your sentence, in your retort. You said, can you hear the sea in Debussy's La Mer? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Would someone know? No. 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 (laughs) But that said, it's a beautiful piece. So get to work, ER. Tell me what time it is. La Mer is great. (laughs) La Mer is wonderful. And this, uh, to be fair, was Debussy's answer to the symphony. He thought the symphony was boring. And or just out, over overdone, I think played out. It was it just it, time to move on. Enough of the symphony, you know. It's been a couple hundred years now, ish. Let's go on. So uh, he wrote La Mer in the early 1900s, 1903 to 1905, and it has three movements, uh, and it it's you know cyclical in the sense that all three movements are you know about the ocean, the sea, and. Debussy's dad was a Navy officer, and really that was like what Debussy was expected to do was to be a sailor. And so he always had this like draw to it, you know, and mm. and when he 
wrote La Mer, which is the sea in French, right? Or the ocean, maybe? I don't know. It's the sea. The sea. All right. Uh, uh, thanks again, Jill, for always <laughs> knowing the answer to my questions. <laughs> um, uh, I, I believe he was landlocked when he wrote it. He wasn't sitting there looking at the sea. He just, he just had done it so often. Did he finish? I heard he finished the third movement in Brittany. Oh, did he? Yeah. I, know, I, I heard that. I have no idea if it's true. Or per, I read that. Per, perhaps. I, okay. I might have to look that up or cut this out, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, and each, each movement has a, a really descriptive name too, which I really like. Uh, and they, they all like, once you know that, then you kind of know what to like listen for. Like you can for. get there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the first movement is called from dawn to noon on the sea. And so there's this lovely sunrise and then the ocean just kind of comes alive. techniques that you'll hear in this first movement uh, when I was talking about harp there's two harps in this uh, piece which okay. again a little uncommon Berlioz did it in his first symphony symphony fantastique but um, and there are plenty of other composers who did but you know we're getting late romantic here when you're talking about two harps in a tune and Debussy also was con considered an impressionist composer which he hated that term but um Nonetheless, that also helps if you're not familiar with WC's music, but maybe you've seen the artwork of uh, Claude Monet or Renoir or mm -hmm. I don't know uh, other artists of that era. You can you can kind of get like where he's coming from. He didn't like that this, that correlation, but I think it works really well personally. Yeah. So in any event, uh, should we just listen to a little bit of the first movement? Yeah, for it sure. It gets going real slow and real quiet, just like a lot of WC. <laughs> just saying. Well, and one thing I, I like about him is I, you know, I see a correlation in wine where right now everybody, well, a lot of people want answers for things that they can't explain. Like with natural wine, you know, there are a lot of faults in natural wine or, you know, there are new esters and flavors that we can't describe. Wines of the sea, uh, hard to fully grasp. Mm -hmm. The ability to taste soil, you know, there are times where I'm like, I smell this wet rock that this came from, and geologists are like, no, you don't. And I'm like, <laughs> I will take it to the grave. Yes, I do. <laughs> and what I like is, um, you know, when I think about Debussy, I think about him talking about, like, art representing truths in a way that is, that are described in ways that are not too direct. Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm. that... With wine, it's sort of like it leaves it to us to, to learn about it and, of course, to dig as deep as we can. But there's going to be a point where you can't go any deeper without reaching or without philosophically mm -hmm. needing to indulge in a conversation to get there or through metaphor. And I, I like there's something about that that frustrates me. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah. And I'm a Libra. And maybe that's okay. <laughs> but so anyway. Yep. Well, let's, yeah, let's listen to a little bit of this uh, first movement. love about this too is that like when I think of walking on the beach in the morning like you just think of all the experiences if you're fortunate enough to have been to the ocean and you like what's happening now why are we all of a sudden to me this feels like I see a storm looming or I just like stepped on a 
shell in my, like, <laughs> you know, like, hurt my foot or something. Like, there, in the, at first it was beautiful and I saw the sun rising. And then you see, so you wonder if you had a conversation with folks that have, have been to the sea. Yeah. How they would react to these changes, you know? Yeah. If you want to hear, do you want to hear the droplets, though? Sure. I think I think I can probably find them. You probably can. love about that is we're at midday now right we're getting maybe yep. to the end of yeah we think of the the tides come in yeah. and they go out yeah and so here are the tides you know are they coming in where it's getting sort of grandiose at midday yeah. before they go out in the afternoon and then they come back in the evening which we'll, yeah. we'll get there but um yeah tides tides, tides yo whoa tides yo tides yeah i mean this piece is so amazing but who was his friend that was like i particularly liked the part at quarter to 11 or whatever <laughs> he told he told wc just totally giving him shit like what the hell is this music you know because it was so unorthodox this and music for the time wasn't it not well received the first Correct. few times yeah even the players a lot of the players hated it they hated playing it you know which i mean I think that happens a lot with new music in general. I think players are always like, brr, it's not brr, you know. But Debussy was, like, very deliberately making a statement against uh, overtly romantic, just, you know, 150 musicians on stage playing dominant sevenths over and over again because Wagner wants to. You know, they're like, he was, like, so over that and really trying really hard to create something new and he did and uh it's 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 pretty great but a lot of people didn't like it and of course now it's just like you know genius yeah and i mean he had had other works too before this but uh but he was older you know before he really you know became famous he was 30 something so i mean that's not really fair he had an interesting life it's fun to read about wc he was a naughty boy he was a naughty, <laughs> naughty, naughty man. <laughs> yeah, he got into some trouble. Really? Lost like some what? friends. Oh. Oh, just he was a little bit of a womanizer, kind of. I mean, that's probably a term my mom would say about it. Like, he was with a girl, and then he wanted a different girl. And then, you know, so throughout all of these kinds of affairs, uh, mm-hmm. he would lose friends here and there and gain others. and. Have you some know, kids. Like one right? woman he left and she killed herself and that's super sad. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he had some kids. He had a daughter. He had a daughter, which is what Children's Corner is written for. Um, Children's Corner is a big, long piano, solo piano work that's quite awesome. stick on the topic of abstraction yes because I think it fits well with this topic of wines from the sea Um, and I want to specifically talk about um, something happier than people killing themselves over lost (laughs) lovers which to me is like bromophenols is exactly what I would want to talk about Um, so (laughs) so let's do that shall we I'm taking these headphones off so um, bromophenols are the first it's the first word, and it might not be the most appropriate, but it's the first um, term that I think of when I think of wines from the sea. I don't think of briny. I don't think of seashells or sea spray. When I smell a wine, I just like put my hands up in the air. I'll drop my pen if I'm taking notes, and I'll think bromophenols. So 
Uh, bromophenols are they're organic compounds that are produced by algae. And if we think of how much algae is in the open ocean, it's like ridiculous. And bromophenols, they're like, um, if you can take bromophenols and you, and you can like lock into what they smell like, they have a seashell-like smell is what a lot of people say. Okay. Um, I'm going to put wine in our glass because why not? Um, or like smelling like oyster shells and, and stuff like that. Um, and so when we also think of bromophenols, I, I don't want to get too in-depth into the or, um, periodic table of elements because I'm going to – going to say screw the pooch but I'm not, <laughs> not going to get too uh, far onto the organic or the periodic table of elements because I know that I'm going to start to speak too freely of something that is not hasn't been scientifically proven but we've got the iodine you know the element iodine we've got the element bromine and they're both they're halogens and bromine is salt producing Okay, that's okay. like that's yep. pr- okay, and we I have, did read that. Okay, and yes. we have when we have iodine, and iodine is used. The Spaniards call when they they live by the sea. They call that element around them that they smell. They call it jodo. And if you look at the Spanish periodic table of elements, jodo is also the word for iodine. Hmm. But if you tell Spaniards. Ask them, what are you smelling in the sea? And they say, jodo. And you say, what is jodo? You mean like jodo, like the periodic, like iodine, like the periodic table? Yeah. And we like, no, like jodo. <laughs> like like this smell of this concentrated smell of the sea that is in their food, mm-hmm. that's in their water, that's in their wine, that's around. They will tell you that I think uh, the Bay of Biscay has the highest quantity of quote unquote jodo in all of Spain. Oh, interesting. And they have the least amount of thyroid problems on, I want to say Europe, but I know for sure the Iberian Peninsula. A lot of people talk about that that has something to do with bromine and iodine. So I'm going to stop there, Mm -hmm. but we know that you can find iodine in fish, right? If you start dissecting fish and taking elemental samples, you can find residual iodine com- components in fish. And we know that fish are like swimming, but they're digesting and they're... Yeah. So, again, bromophenols, iodine, it all evaporates, gets carried around, dumps on a vineyard with yeast. Why can that, whatever that is, yeah. Not trans, not transfer through fermentation. Right, like there's so many chemical things happening during fermentation and changing uh, changes. Excuse me, but why? Why is that not possible? So, we have a wine here that is from the region of Muscadet, which is on the western, north-ish western coast of the Loire Valley in France, and the grape here is Melon de Bourgogne. A lot of people would, you know argue that this is a, also a very sea-laden wine in terms of what it smells like, smells like the ocean. <clears throat> One thing that um, lovers of Muscadet would either argue or they would be in favor of is that with the, a lot of Muscadets are surly, which means they spend a little bit of time on their lees or their, their dead yeast cells, and that that can enhance the aromas of the sea, and others say it masks. And I think, you know what? Oh. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. Can we smell the sea yeah. in this glass of Pepier Muscadet Servimane, which is um, a, in reference to the Appalachian, the region that it comes from, but also the, the two confluences of the Loire River. All right. So this definitely, to me, isn't as fruity. Is it as fruity right. to you? No, uh-uh. And does it smell kind of... Like more like bread or like wet bread or bread dough versus the other one that was apple-y and fruity and minerally. I smell minerally in this one though too. Okay. Not apple-y or fruity. Okay, love that. <laughs> what about on the palate? Is there is there a flavor of salt of some sort? Yes. Different, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is it seems I, drier to me. It's they're both equally as dry, but this um it has less, I think, less like 
overt fruit tones, which can sometimes make people think that, that it's actually drier when in reality they both are have about the same amount of grams per liter of residual sugar, which is next to nothing. It's probably maybe two to three grams. Um, what would you say in terms of the salt level here? Is the salt level more or is the salt level less? And granted, this is two years older than the Amistoy, but. I was about to say less until I got to the end. Mm-hmm. Like lick your teeth, maybe? You had the lick tooth mm-hmm. test. That was a good one. I know. So that's when I was going to say less, and then I licked my lips, and it seemed like more. Have you sweat today, though, maybe? I don't know. My oh, like- probably not. All I did was work at the radio station. Not a lot of sweat <laughs> goes into that process. Okay. Well, I, think, I think you're right. I think there's a little less. There's definitely yeah. saltiness my instinct, here. But- my first instinct was correct then. I think so. And mm-hmm. and if I yeah. were to, you know, when we stand on different seashores, that's when I'm like meditating on a seashore. That's what I'm meditating about usually is like, how does this feel on my yodo, on my bromophenol <laughs> like scale? Like yeah. what has more element? Because some places go and they like reek of algae, right? I was in this... Yeah. um area down by the Gulf of Mexico, and it was, like, haunting how much, how, like, it was just, like, smelled like a plankton mess. And then it was, (laughs) granted, it was all over the beach Yeah. when I rounded the bend, and I was like, oh, that's what I'm smelling, plankton that's, like, rotting fetidly on the beach. Wow. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then you got all these other notions of sea spray and stuff. But there are certain beaches that are, like, quite clean, even though Mm -hmm. it's the ocean, and they smell... Mm -hmm a little bit more neutral or less so. So this, I would argue, smells a little bit. And the whole region around Nantes is very populated. Um, around this, where this is produced? Yep. Okay. And and very touristy. The Basque country as well, especially San Sebastián, very touristy, a lot of, lot of great infrastructure there for that. But when you get into the villages around the Basque country, um, I mean, that doesn't really have anything to do with whether there's more yodo or less yodo. But many people in wine would say chacolis are inherently more salty than muscadets. Like, mic drop, you know? And then yeah. there, But there is, <laughs> there's definitely some saltiness. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So a fun topic to talk about, especially uh, when, you, when you start traveling around the world. And, you know, California has some wines that are salty when the vineyards are quite close to the ocean and have mm-hmm. that coastal influence. And wines from Sardinia and, you know, Sicily. And then you start getting to which has more. And God, scientists just want to just want to take us all down for even <laughs> wanting to quantify. But it's, it's a fun discussion to be had for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's delicious. I like the Chocolina better for sure. Okay. Yeah. Love that. It's, I think the bubbliness makes it more fun for one thing, but it's also just, it has more flavor. So that's, that's what I got. That's what I got. Bromophenols. Yep. DMS. Yeah. Jodo. Yeah. Iodine. Yeah. Bromine. Salty briny. Salty briny. And, and the last thing, we can maybe put this somewhere else. People often, when they have oysters, they talk about how... They, they love it because it tastes like the sea. I'm eating the sea, right? Okay, that's cool. You're eating it out of the oyster Ooh, shell. Yeah. If you take, if you cut out an oyster from the yeah. same batch, so you know you have the same, you know, same coming family from the same of farm, oysters. Exactly. Yeah. And you put it in a dish, like a porcelain dish. Yeah. Better yet, a stainless steel, non-reactive yeah. dish. And you... It obviously is going to still be wet and smell of the sea because it's got seawater in it. Yes. But if you rinse it off and eat it, it tastes like nothing, really. <laughs> so you're relying on, and the collection of bromophenols that reside on that oyster shell Gotta gives be off that, the charts. Off the charts. The same with like sea urchin, right? They're so heralded because of they taste like pure sea essence. But if you're just eating that muscle or, or you know. The meat. Yes. And you were to rinse it off and eat it in a, you know, with a fork and a vessel, it wouldn't taste like anything. So 
to keep that in mind with with wine, I think, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think that's fascinating. It is. Okay, so let's listen to a little bit more WC. Um, and we'll listen to the second movement, which is called Play of the Waves, which is fun. Uh, je de Vaujoie. I don't know how to say it. Je. I know that's je. Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there because my right. French friend will hate me. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that's fun about this movement that you can listen for crashing waves is you hear a lot of cymbal crashes, right? Uh, the two harps again. There's some delightful cor anglais, English horn, that happens in this movement. Um, but you also hear that stepwise motion, lots of rising and falling lines, hmm. and then the crashing waves. So this is just a this is just a movement about you know waves and at the, the, the at the sea. And then the third movement is fun because it's just this conversation between the land and the sea, and you can hear it. They go back and forth. They trade, you know, words. <laughs> of land and sea or of wind and sea? Wind and sea, my bad. Or of wind and the waves is, I think, a more literal translation in that in that instance, for some reason, dialogue of the wind du vent and, and waves. Du la mer, so. That says the sea, I know, but I'm saying, in any event... Uh, it says that it is tumultuous. It is. Anime et tumulto. Oh, those are his uh, markings for tempo and, and style. And it does sound yeah, tumultuous. It's very animated, yeah. And he basically uses all of those techniques that he uses in the first two movements uh, in the third one. So let's hear just a little bit of the third one. Do it, do it, do right, it. Actually. The scores and pours. The scores and pours. Cheers. Thank you for listening to episode one of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated.